everybody and welcome back to another episode of Hitchcock Happy Hour. I'm Sarah Shaw and I'm Lydia Jordan and today we are continuing animation month with one of my favorite Hayao Miyazaki films, <laughs> Howl's Moving Castle. <laughs> Forgot it for a minute. Well, this drink is strong. Like, <laughs> bury the lead. Am I okay? <laughs> Make us work for it. Um, yeah, that's this right. That was on purpose. Just a little suspenseful it... <laughs> pause. <laughs> we love a little suspense. Um, <laughs> I forgot how like incredibly sweet this movie is, it's and I so rewatched sweet. it for this. You know, it's so good. Also, like really intense, but really good. Also, a fire cast for the like English language version. Didn't realize it. Yeah, it's, like, all of our favorite, like, old Hollywood stars that are in this. It's amazing. Um, So I'm really excited to talk about this. But before we jump in, Lydia, can you just please (laughs) tell us what we're drinking today? (laughs) Well, today, ironically, we're drinking a Mexican firing squad, which (laughs) I have have never had before. Uh, It's so good. Um, This episode's about to be probably a little bit wild. Um... Because I don't drink tequila very often, but it's tequila, grandine, lime juice, and some bitters. And I have to say, I think I like this more than a margarita. So, I said it. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think um, the combo of tequila and bitters is, like, so fun. I've never, like, thought of that or done that before, and I really like it. I, um, I, for some reason, don't feel like it's as sweet as a margarita. Maybe I've just, like, had really sweet margaritas, but even with the grenadine... It doesn't feel as intense because I feel like margaritas have both Cointreau and tequila in it. And so it's just like really booze heavy. Feels really heavy. Like I just feel like it's a really heavy cocktail. But this is like so light and refreshing. Really easy to make. Minimal ingredients. Very fun. Literally three ingredients. Well, I mean, I guess four if you count the bitters, which is technically an ingredient. But <laughs> five if you can count the ice. <laughs> that doesn't count. <laughs> I've decided. <laughs> Okay, fine, four. Um, So tasty, though. But yeah, it's ironic uh, because of the subject matter of this movie. Um, Which is pacifism. Pacifism? Pacifism. (laughs) What? Oh, God. Oh, no. Oh, no. Um, This movie is an anti-war movie, and here we are drinking a Mexican firing squad, so it'll be fun. It'll be fun times, but I'm excited. a a Japanese film, so there's that as well. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. We should have gone with, like, a Japanese whiskey or something, but I know. I wanted to do, like, a sake cocktail, but I didn't have any sake on hand, and this was a lazy day. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think tequila is great for today, Um, but I'm excited to talk about this one. Well, let's go ahead and jump on in. So we debated, I just want to like say at the top, we debated really hard which Studio Ghibli film we were going to do. We decided to do Howl's Moving Castle because we just both really love that film. But I mean, there's so many good ones. If you look at their, um, it's kind of their list of films that they've put out. It's pretty, pretty incredible. So this is just one of many. I'm hoping that we can do, you know, continue to do Animation Month into the future because Again, they just have so many amazing films that explore really nuanced characters and just very prescient themes. So anyways, I just wanted to say that at the top because we did like debate which film to do. <laughs> we did. We actually spent a lot of time. We didn't want to we didn't want to do them wrong and 
um we we re- like there's so many to choose from we wanted to make sure we picked the right one that was going to be like enjoyable but also like one that talks about um certain themes that their movies are famous for i just my my one contingency was like i did not want to rewatch spirited away because that movie scared me so much when i was little that movie traumatized us as children and we're just not ready so maybe next year. we're not it is probably <laughs> the most famous of the studio ghibli movies though and i'm sure everybody has heard of it but exactly they're all so, very good <laughs> highly recommend give them all a watch um but yeah Spirited Away was my childhood trauma. (laughs) I'll leave it at that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Howl's Moving Castle is a 2004 Japanese animated fantasy film written and directed by Hayao Miyazaki. It's loosely based on the 1986 novel of the same name by English author Diana Wynne-Jones. The English dub version, so I'm not really going to talk about the Japanese version and acting um, just because that isn't the version that we watched um, or that's like widely available. Um, So we're going to be talking about the English dubbed version, which stars Gene Simmons, uh, Emily Mortimer, Lauren Bacall. Hell yeah. I'm obsessed with this cast. Christian Bale, Josh Hutcherson. Did you know that he was the little, he's like (laughs) Merkel or or whatever. (laughs) And Billy Crystal, which is like, this is like Billy Crystal role ever. This, yeah for him. <laughs> obsessed it's so cute um i will say this is the least lauren bacall role ever because if you see the like love it you like you'll recognize her voice but then you're like oh my god like, you're like wait this, this is like weird her. like ugly witch <laughs> it's so confusing but it's amazing it's amazing and we'll talk about it because i adore her um, so the film is set in a fictional kingdom where both magic and early 20th, 20th century technology are prevalent. It's against the backdrop of a war with another kingdom. And it tells the story of Sophie, who's a young milliner, who is turned into an elderly woman by a witch who enters her shop and curses her. She encounters a wizard named Howell and gets caught up in his resistance to fighting for the king. Howl's Moving Castle premiered at the 61st Venice International Film Festival on September 5th in 2004 and was theatrically released um, in Japan on November 20th, 2004. It grossed $190 million in Japan and $236 million worldwide. So very successful. Damn, yeah, really successful. Yeah, it received critical acclaim um, with particular praise towards its visuals and um, his presentation of the themes of the film. It was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Animated Picture at the 78th, 78th Academy Awards, but it ultimately lost to Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of the Were-Rabbit, which feels like a miss, but... <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> I know, I read that and I was like, angry. <laughs> feels like a bit of a sidestep, but all right. <laughs> You know, war, like beautiful that stop That stop motion, though. <laughs> you know, they did work motion. very hard on a film that was just completely subpar, so. <laughs> yeah. Alas. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's go ahead and jump on into the plot. I don't know about you, but like as a kid, I feel like I really connected with the character of Sophie. Is that weird to say? I don't know. <laughs> um, not gonna, yes, like, as a kid, yes, did connect with Sophie. She's, like, weird and awkward, but, like, also amazing. I will say, upon rewatching this, my favorite character is Turnip Head. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously. <laughs> so cute. 
he's so cute who is like the missing randomly the missing prince but anyway wow spoiler Thara. no i'm just sorry kidding. this whole show is spoiler alert so <laughs> the plot is amazing i upon rewatching it a lot of it did go over my head as a child so. oh yeah, I think I was definitely there for the visuals because yes, did not I was catch definitely on a lot of it. definitely there for the visuals. Absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and get on into the plot for those who haven't seen this movie. So our uh, he- heroine here, our uh, protagonist, is Sophie, who's a young milliner. Which I don't know why, but I just love the word milliner. Just milliner rolls off it. the tongue. <laughs> it really does. She's the eldest of three sisters, which. In case you were wondering, even though, like, they don't, that doesn't really matter, but it, that, there you go. She, they talked about one sister very briefly. They do. They do. Um, she encounters a wizard named Howl on her, her way to visit her sister, Letty. And upon returning home, she meets the Witch of the Waste, who transforms her into a 90 year old woman. Seeking to break the curse, Sophie leaves home and sets off through the countryside. She meets a living scarecrow, whom she calls Turnip Head. And he leads her to Howl's moving castle, where she enters without invitation. She subsequently meets Howl's young apprentice, Markle, and a fire demon named Calcifer, um, which is, Calcifer is the source of the castle's magic, and also how it's able to move around. So, you go, Calcifer. (laughs) You go, Calcifer. Literally. Somebody's got to do it. (laughs) Literally carrying this castle on his back. Like, Like, literally. truly. And he won't let you forget it, either. (laughs) No, he won't. But I will say... The thing that I relate to, like, with Sophie the most is that she is literally vibing and most comfortable as a 90-year-old woman, which yeah, is, like, I was how like, I feel Yeah, It's kind of, like, 13 going on 30, but instead it, it's, like, 18 going on 81. <laughs> <laughs> she literally, like, comes into her own as this, like, 90-year-old grandma is, like, so confident like just vibing like having a good time and I'm I love it so much I love that for her no we'll talk about it but it's one of my favorite parts of this movie yeah it's it's great it's so wholesome and she's like I guess I'm 90 now like that's fine she's like that's (laughs) cool I'm just gonna embrace it um so Sophie makes a deal with Calcifer agreeing that if Agreeing, so, like, he'll break her curse if she breaks his link with Howell. Um, when Howell appears, Sophie announces that she's the new cleaning lady, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> she's like, hey. He's like, who are you? She's like, I'm the cleaning lady. He's like, who hired you? She's like, uh, I did? Calcifer did? I don't know. We don't. So, so we don't I'm know. just here. But I'm just here. <laughs> He's like, all right. So, I mean, this whole movie is definitely giving, like, World War One vibes. So, her nation is caught up in another war. It, not in another war, but in a war with a neighboring kingdom who is searching for their missing prince. So, in order to fight against this other country, the king has summoned all of the wizards, including Howell, to fight in the war. However... Howell decides to send Sophie to the king under the pretense of her being his mother to tell um, to tell the king that, like, he's not going to fight because he's a coward. And he gives her this little ring that guarantees her safety. So Sophie meets Solomon, who's the king's head sorceress. Um, and 
the Witch of the Waste is also there, which is, like, one of the funniest scenes where she's, like, going up the stairs. It's, like, really gross, but also funny. Yeah, it's really funny. <laughs> and Solomon, who's a super powerful sorceress, punishes the the Witch of the Waste um, by draining all of her power and reverting her to her true age, making her a harmless old woman. Solomon warns Sophie that Howell will meet the same fate if he does not fight for the king. Then Howell arrives to rescue Sophie, and they escape. It's amazing. Um, Solomon had tried to trap him by turning him into a monster, but with Sophie's help, he remembers himself and just barely avoids death. So they escape along with the former Witch of the Waste and Solomon's dog, Heen, which is so cute. I love Heen. The dog is so cute. Also, I I will say, like... the animal sidekick. Yeah, it's great. And, like, it turns out Howl is just, like, a kind of, like, moody like teen boy (laughs) he's not that impressive he's just like an angsty boy like he he comes into his own but like truly just like is a lazy boy that is just like i don't wanna and i'm like i don't have any self-confidence and like that's his vibe he doesn't have self-confidence but i think he's also like very selfish like he's just used to doing things super self-indulgent yes and anytime he gets close to anyone he's like gotta cut that off and like move along yeah he's like clearly a serial monogamist i think they like actually mentioned that (laughs) not in not in such terms and he's very vain so that's a big part of it Yes. When he has, like, the massive meltdown because his hair was the wrong color. Was, like, like, literal meltdown. Part. Like, he literally starts melting into goo. <laughs> like, he turns into goo and they have to, like, drag him to the bathtub. But also, like... And they're like, all right. I relate. And then his little towel. <laughs> his little just, towel gets left oh behind. God. And Sophie's like, In the oh. goo. And you hear it just drop. It's so funny. She's like, use your legs. Come on, man. He's just like, I'm, he's like, I might as well die. There's no point in living if I'm not attractive. I was just like, oh my God. Also, Christian Bale, who voices Howell, uses his Batman voice and it's like hilarious. It's so funny and we'll talk about it because I was like dying because I was like, this voice sounds familiar and then the credits rolled and I was like, oh, that's right. It was Christian Bale. It's wonderful. All right. Anyways, in the meantime, soldiers from each kingdom break into the homes of both Jenkins and Pendragon, who are Howl's aliases in the other kingdoms. And he uses his, like, magic house to go between all these different places, I guess, to, to make a living. You know, he's he's just an honest wizard. He's got to work. <laughs> just an honest blue-collar wizard. <laughs> you know, doing what he can pay, to make ends Paycheck to paycheck. <laughs> got to pay them bills, even in wizard worlds I guess <laughs> and like I think so I don't know if you also got this like because when you mentioned it I was like yeah that's totally correct um this the like vibe of this place that the setting that we're in is like very turn of the century Europe that's like the vibe that I'm no 100 percent. Right it's very much kind of mod so I think Hayao Miyazaki actually went to like Alsace to like yeah that it's model very, it's, yes. it feels very much like that almost kind of like Swiss yeah. Germanic French like yes kind of mountain yeah, village a nice like melting of, like, pot fields. Of, yeah yes kind of sound of music vibes very much very so, much so. <laughs> very much so um anyways so these soldiers break in to find these wizards to try to get them to go fight in their war however they only find empty courtyards and warehouses because the castle's magic um allows them to kind of travel between these four different places which is fun i love the little door with the like little magic Thing. It has the little like <laughs> like the little spinny wheel. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Oh, so good. 
So Sophie learns that Howell's life is somehow bound to Calcifer's, although she's not totally clear why, and that Howell has been transforming himself into a bird-like creature to interfere with both sides of the war. But each transformation that he makes is making it even more difficult for him to return to human form. Howell then has the castle magically linked to Sophie's home, parking the castle itself in the town's outskirts. A few days later, the town is bombed by enemy aircraft and Solomon's henchmen attack the house and Sophie's hat shop. Howell leads out, heads out to protect the group and Sophie moves everyone out of the house and removes Calcifer from the fireplace, which collapses the castle. The Witch of the Waste realizes that Calcifer has Howell's heart and grabs the fire demon, setting herself on fire. Sophie panics and pours water onto the witch, which douses Calcifer. The remainder of the castle then splits in two. Sophie falls down a chasm and is separated from the group. But she still has her charmed ring, so don't be too scared, because she wanders into a scene from the past where she sees a young Howl catch a falling star, which is Calcifer, and he gives Calcifer his heart. Sophie calls for them to find her in the future as she is teleported away. She returns to the present, finds Howell, and they reunite with the others. The witch returns Howell's heart, and Sophie places it back inside Howell, reviving him and freeing Calcifer. Um, and this is my favorite part, that he like decides to stay, even though he's like a cute little magic shooting star and could go wherever. So wholesome. This means that Sophie's curse is broken, though her hair remains white, which, you know what, slay girl, like... Slagle, she gets like a cute little like yeah, she has like a long bob. It's like a, it's a like, lob. Yeah. Is that even what you yeah, call it? Yeah, a lob. <laughs> I don't know. It's very like mid, a long mid bob. 2010s. She gets like yeah, she gets like a very like kind of trendy like chic short haircut. It looks good. Calcifer needed to like, like eat layers. her hair to like vibe. Yeah, Calcifer like revived himself by like eating her braid. <laughs> I like, thought you were right, go he off to eat her hair to vibe, and I was like, what? <laughs> no, he just survive <laughs> well, I, I, I mean you kind of did need to eat her hair to vibe <laughs> true true my favorite part is when um she kisses like turnip head and then he turns into the prince that like, was gonna be what i said next is yeah so she kisses turnip head turns out he was the missing prince someone like put a little spell on him um but he reveals that only true love's kiss can break his curse and then she's like she's like oh that's nice but like I'm kind of into Howl (laughs) the witch of the waste is like oh looks like your true love is in love with someone else and he's like all right well good luck he's like hey maybe we'll see each other again goodbye (laughs) he's like you never know (laughs) also apparently his name is Justin I don't know oh okay (laughs) cool there you go. Shout out to Justin. Shout out to Justin for being chill. I feel like they could have made that into a bigger deal, like a bigger choice yeah, she had to make. Like, but like, love here, that for Like, us. here comes the trope of true love's kiss yet again, but like not really mattering very much. I know. So funny. It's true. So, anyways, he like decides to head home to end this stupid war. Solomon, little like sneaky hoe that she is, is watching through her crystal globe. Um, she sees kind of everyone be reunited and she decides to end the war. Sometimes later, sometime later, we see bombers flying under dark skies, um, over a countryside headed to another war while Sophie Howell and the others travel in the opposite direction in a new flying castle because they've made their little family. They have a little family. 
It's so cute. I love it. It's really cute. I'm obsessed. Really sweet movie. Yeah. Really sweet movie. Again, it's a really sweet movie. Um, well, let's go ahead and kind of jump into, I think, one of the, like, main themes of this movie, which is very much pacifism. There's a lot of, like, great themes going on, but I think this one's really interesting because this film was very much influenced by Miyazaki's opposition to the U.S.'s evasion uh, in Iraq, which I thought was unique. Again, this film came out in 2004. Um, the U.S., I believe, invaded Iraq in 2003. Um, and he, like, has, he, like, you know, spoke out uh, that this film was really meant um to reflect that he had a lot of rage about the Iraq war because he himself is very much a pacifist and he wanted to make a film that he felt like would be poorly received in the United States, which I thought was really interesting. Good for him. Yeah. He was like, (laughs) fuck that. (laughs) So I just thought that like clearly throughout war is made, it's clear that it's pointless. It's very much between like not the people themselves, but these you know, governmental figures. It's really not anything that's directly impacting the people. Well, I mean, the war itself is impacting the people, but the reason for the war is not because there needed to be war. It was because these two, like, governments were, you know, just being shitty to each other. Like, there's this missing prince, and so they decide to attack the other country. But, again. I find it really interesting, too, that kind of to that point of how it's, like, it's not really about the people, but it involves them, is that... They're like these kind of innocent bystanders, like all these sorcerers, have to get involved in this war because their government tells them to. But and and if you don't, you're you're like you're a coward and you're not considered like patriotic or like a good person. Where Howell is just like a young guy, like he doesn't, he's just like trying to live his life. Like he, it's not like it's not actually a big deal that he doesn't want to get involved in this war. It's actually like he just he's not a fighter and that's fine, but they make it seem like. It encompasses all of the people, but they don't actually, you don't really even know why, like, there's not really a purpose to the war, and and it's really interesting, and I think the type of warfare that they're doing in this is very, like, World War II-esque, but the the setting is very much like a World War One like, era, so it's really, it's interesting that it's taking from, like, early, kind of, um, very, like, traditional, early 20th century warfare, it's very, and, and, and how it affected, like, people was probably very similar at the time. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting too about how they depict the war is one of the things that they make clear repeatedly is that all of the wizards who are involved in the war are becoming basically inhuman. Um they're like using their powers um to take on these forms and by doing so are unable to turn back and are becoming these like monstrous creatures. So I feel like that also goes back to themes of like PTSD and how war really does change you as a person like you can't go through that trauma and the horrors of war without it affecting you um so I feel like there's quite a bit of of allusion to that I would say as well yeah and neither of the governments are considered like good like it's not like a good versus evil government whereas like a lot of you know world war ii american world war ii movies or even movies that we want that are made now about world war ii it's like very much like america is the hero america is like the the good and then the you know axis is the bad which it is you know that is true but like war is not black and white it's very gray i mean you know especially if we're going like more world war one era um 
I, I think that there, you know, governments have to do bad things to win. And I think that this kind of depicts that and that it's not really, it's not really about the political powers that are involved. And they're not, they never depict like one of the kingdoms as being like the good versus the evil. It's very much like the people are being affected by both of these kind of um, corrupt governments that are fighting for some reason. Well, and again, it's like they didn't want to be part of it. There wasn't there wasn't a clear reason why there needed to be a war like it wasn't a problem that couldn't have been solved some other way but again the people have become the victims of this situation and are the ones being like punished for something that they didn't have a choice in so again I think there's I think one of the most like emotional scenes or kind of the most like I don't know interesting scenes is where Howell takes Sophie to this place that was special to his childhood and it's this like beautiful field with this like stunning lake kind of set up in the Alps and then all of a sudden this big warship comes in and it's just like this ugly like you know war machine in this like beautiful place and I feel like the way that he depicts war and like the machines of war by juxtaposing the ugliness of it with such a beautiful place was a really powerful way to do it to show just like how awful that we would create something in such a beautiful world <laughs> you know I totally how agree. it just ruins I to- it I had the I had the same exact feeling when I saw that scene yeah and just kind of the shock and surprise of the people being like like how being like that's not supposed to be here and it's just like how can like how can even something so bad not keep at least one thing sacred like nothing is off limits and and that was really powerful to me too and I was like it's just such a heartbreaking moment he was like opening up to Sophie showing her this piece of a child and giving it to her as like her safe space and then you realize it's not actually a safe space yeah because nothing is safe (laughs) Ah. so I think again that's one of the big themes in this film it's definitely not like an undertone I would say that's the overtone for this movie but I think there's also some really really unique themes that I would I'm interested to get your take on but I don't think that these are themes that necessarily get represented I would say especially in American cartoons and one of those is the theme of old age which I think is really interesting usually when we see old age like again this is interesting coming off of the heels of Snow White where we see the Wicked Witch or the whatever the wicked stepmother or whatever her she's called the evil queen whatever <laughs> yeah the evil queen same, it's all the same all, the, it's same. all the same but she turns herself into this old woman um and that's supposed to be super scary whereas sophie becomes this old woman but in a lot of ways it's actually freedom for her like she's able to be herself in a way that she wasn't able to as like a younger woman and she's become like at peace with herself and the world around her which again I feel like is really unique um and it's this positive view of older age that I don't think we get in other film especially in film I would say (laughs) no I totally agree and I think I I was thinking the same thing when I was watching it and it's really refreshing to see non-American cartoon movies but just non-American films um depicting old age because I think one of the biggest differences um that that doesn't really necessarily exist in movies that are not American and it's a representation of Hollywood and like kind of the influence of Hollywood and how the toxicity especially with female actors exists in Hollywood 
is ageism and I think that's a very that's a very specific concept to Hollywood movies and it's depicted very very differently in Snow White as it is in this movie and I think in Snow White it's a very Hollywoodized version of ageism and it's it's it it uses old age to describe something that's bad and something that is evil and something that we don't want to achieve at all and and um that's kind of a concept that's reinforced throughout Hollywood and I think if you juxtapose that with this movie like you said um it's very different and I think it 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 kind of goes to the differences in how different cultures view old age and I and I think you know not not really in the U.S. compared to some other cultures is like people that are older are respected more and are are considered wiser and more confident and kind of believable and can kind of just you know be more in like a leadership role and um, it's not necessarily a bad thing and I think you see a lot of movies with older actresses that come out of like French film and you know like Italian film and certainly like in this movie it depicts older age as something to be proud of and not ashamed of and and confidence and instead of like evil and like kind of decrepit and something to be fought against yeah I think it's really refreshing to see and I think one of the the scenes that captures that so beautifully that you actually sent me a, a screenshot from earlier still from was when she's at um this beautiful lake with Markle and she's talking about how in her old age she's really able to appreciate the scenery and just kind of the beauty of the natural landscape and it was just like a really beautiful moment you know yeah it was and I think one thing too that 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 I really loved about it was that the people that fall in love with her fall in love with her as a person and it's not really the age that matters no it's not because of how she looks or anything like that it's not her beauty that captures people it's because she sees something in them and is able to like see the best in them and help them like rise to that which I think is really beautiful so I don't know it makes me a little teary I love her yeah me too I that scene where she's like yeah in my old age I get to like appreciate the scenery or something I just like I got so choked up I was like oh my god I feel that so much and that's just it was just a it's a beautiful it's it's like two seconds but it's beautiful I mean it's it's just very peaceful. It's a very peaceful scene in the midst of this movie about kind of war and pacifism within war. So. Yeah. Um, so I think it will be no surprise then that I would say this film as a whole also contains some pretty strong feminist elements, which again is very, it's just so satisfying to see because at the same time, like Disney was producing some other animated films, which I would say like has some pretty like stereotypical themes that don't always empower women in the same way so I think it's cool to see even in that same time frame that the films that Hayao Miyazaki is developing at Studio Ghibli really are like talking about like equality and showcasing like strong women in a way that's yes there's romantic like moments in this film like her love for Howl but it also feels like more than just a romantic love that they share it's a love of it's like they've made their own family like none of them ever felt like they belonged and it's like this like deeper this deeper love of people who also accept one another for all the good and bad I totally agree and it it, it kind of reminded me like Disney hadn't I don't think you know one of the first one of the first Disney movies to kind of deal with the idea of feminism and, and depict like a stronger female princess quote-unquote in those 
traditional Disney movies. Um, I, the first one I ever saw was Mulan, and that that's a more recent Disney film, and that's also a, that's also a story that is non um western i mean and it's i think that kind of goes towards the concepts again that the different cultures respect women in different ways and you know the the story of mulan is like it the the disney cartoon is taken from the legend like that already existed but it's very different than like all of the western kind of stories that um influence disney movies about like more white cartoon <laughs> characters and i think like it's a huge difference there and I think that's just, like, another thing that kind of goes to the idea of, like, Disney movies kind of represent this um, very different stereotypical trope of what a female needs to be in, in a certain society. Yeah, it's like, you can be strong, but at the end of the day, it really comes to, like, you being with a man, and that's where your value is. Like, I think that is the unfortunate message. But I think this film, again, it's more than that, and I think that's why this film is so special and why even... 20 years later, it still really, really resonates. So I was curious because I was looking up Studio Ghibli and all of the articles I was finding, like there wasn't like a lot of meat on the bone. So I ended up finding this really great um, series on YouTube by, um, called The Animation Look Back, The History of Studio Ghibli. It's six parts. Um, it was really well done and it was really interesting to get like a more in-depth understanding of kind of the history of their films. Um, and like, how they became as prolific as they did. So Studio Ghibli, also it's not Ghibli, although I think if you said Ghibli, no one would care, but I was curious about the pronunciation. I don't know. Um, so it's really three people that that like founded this studio. And it's directors Hayao Miyazaki and Aseo Takahata, and then produ- producer Toshio Suzuki. So Miyazaki and Takahata had worked together at various animation studios together starting in the 1960s. Um, And they were directing and animating some of Japan's really popular anime films at the time. Suzuki, who is the producer for a lot of these films, was actually a reporter at a manga magazine called Animage. And he was first introduced by Miyazaki because he asked for an interview about a recent film they had done called Horus. This conversation, like, apparently didn't really go anywhere. Miyazaki, like, didn't really want to tell him anything about anything. But um, Suzuki ended up asking him for another interview for another film that they did that was actually, like, ended up being really poorly received. Um, And after that, the relationship kind of just, like, went from there. Um, So they grabbed, like, coffee or lunch one time. And Miyazaki told Suzuki about this, like, original idea he had for, like about this futuristic world where there's like these weird bugs that are like trying to attack everyone. This would eventually become Nausicaa. Suzuki was like obsessed with this idea. He thought it was amazing. And so he actually got the film pitched, but it got turned down because at that time, unless you had material for the film to be based off of and like a fan base to show the success, no one really wanted to invest in that film. So Miyazaki really believed in this idea and he actually started publishing Nausicaa in Animage as like, as like a manga series. Um, and he wrote all of these different, like, I don't know what you'd call them, but like, what do you, what do you call them in like serials, I guess? Like he, all these editions of, of Nausicaa and eventually the film got picked up. 
So the film was commercially successful and it allowed them to finally form Studio Ghibli in 1985. So the name Ghibli was chosen by Miyazaki. There's kind of two different meanings here. The first is that it comes from an Italian noun, which means hot, like it's basically like this Arabic word that means hot desert wind, which is interesting. And some say that that's because this this studio was supposed to breathe kind of this new wind through the animation industry. I think that the more like realistic though, like I, I actually really like Hayao Miyazaki because he's kind of just like not like someone who has like a lot of meaning in things. Like he is, but he isn't, you know, kind of thing. He's just like sometimes a pipe is just a pipe. Yeah, no, it's 100% that. He, so it also refers to an Italian aircraft and he was like, yeah, I just, I like Italy. I like aircrafts and that's the name. And so that's, he's like, yeah, that's just He's like, I thought is. the name was cool. I don't really know. No, basically, that's basically what it is. I love that. Um, so that's <laughs> like, my favorite. So that happened in 1985. The first official Studio Ghibli film then was Castle in the Sky, which debuted in 1986. Um, a fun fact about that is it was replayed on television in 2004, and it reached a new peak of tweets per second on Twitter when it was uh, when it did that, which is kind of cool. In case you were wondering, it was 143,199 tweets per second, which is actually pretty impressive. Japan is, Japan is like kind of a small country. <laughs> yeah, you're like, thank you so much for asking. It was this many tweets. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I actually really like that movie. I forgot about that one. <laughs> That's a really good one. Well, and I didn't realize that that was their first official film as a studio. I thought that that would come like much later in their chronology because it is such, it's just such a well-made film. It's really well made. I actually thought Princess, um, I don't remember how to pronounce Ma- that one, but Ma- I thought that was like one. Yeah, I think that, I thought that was one of their first No, movies. it was actually pretty late, which was surprising to me. Yeah. It came, I think it came after That movie Spirited is super Away. sad. <laughs> super sad. Kind of similar like war themes as this film. So in 1988 though, barely two years after it's stu- the studio's creation, they kind of reached a point where they could have shuttered their doors, which is really interesting. So earlier that year, they released a film called Grave of the Fireflies, which is an adaptation of Akiyuki Nusaka's semi-autobiographical short story um, about two children left to their own devices during the Second World War. It was deemed too harsh for Japanese audiences, and they didn't allow them to screen it so they had put like oh damn years into this film and then weren't allowed to show it because you know the themes that it it were, intense, were not suitable yeah. for children luckily though they had also been working on my neighbor totoro that year as well um and that was released the same year and they actually ended up licensing like the rights to make stuffed animals and that's what kept them from like declaring bankruptcy which is like pretty crazy so dude it's wild but kind of a fluke thing because I would say Studio Ghibli as a whole really only focuses on one film at a time and if they hadn't have had kind of two films that they were able to release they would have like closed their doors which is really interesting that's crazy and that's also My Neighbor Totoro is such a great movie too it's so good yeah that was another contender I really love that film and I would say too that film really established or not established but it cemented their style of film like the way that they do their 
their scenery. I think they really pushed the artistic limits and that very much, I think, became kind of what what they're now known for and kind of the artistic style that, that kind of carries through all of their, you know, films that they created after. So, um, Kiki's Delivery Service, another great film, was released in oh, 1989, yeah, which was a smash hit in Japan. Spirited Away, which we have talked about at the beginning, was released in 2001. That one actually did win an Oscar that year for Best Animated Film. That's probably their most famous one for American audiences. Yeah, I would, I would say. say so. It's it's consistently on, like, top film lists. Absolutely. I would say the last it's not, one... It's one of those movies where I'm like, it's, like, maybe their, like, quote-unquote best, but best. it's not actually my favorite. Agreed. Agreed. I think critically it's one of the best. The best. Actually, Grave of the Fireflies, which is the one they weren't allowed to share, is, like, critic like... 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, I think. Which I've is never wild. seen that one. And I feel I, like it would be really good, but like really sad. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's interesting about that film is I don't think that it was included in as many like um, deals, like when people did get their filmography to show on streaming services. That was one of the ones that I don't think is typically included. So it's a, I think part of it is it's a little bit harder to get a hold of. Like it's just not as accessible as some of the other films. Um, yeah, so I thought that was kind of interesting. So one of the very interesting things about Studio Ghibli is that they actually had a pretty big debacle after Nausicaa's release. So after Nausicaa, kind of that first film that was the predecessor to them starting the studio, um, they actually allowed a studio to dub over it and edit it pretty heavily to view in America. And when they did that, they basically like ruined the plot they cut out a bunch of stuff like they really took liberties with the script in the end the film was nothing of the original intention that Hayao Miyazaki had for the film and I think it was like you know as someone he's very much that kind of director who has a creative vision and like really wants to stay true to it so because of that terrible experience, Studio Ghibli has a very strict no cuts and edit- editing policy with any of its English language releases. So they do, they're very like heavily involved in that process. If there are any changes. Honestly, that's good though, because yeah. I think a lot of the like meaning behind um, line translation could be very different if they weren't involved. Exactly. Well, and I think that what's interesting too is that um, there was an issue with, I can't remember which one, classic it was with Harvey Weinstein, but he wanted to make some edits to the film for it to like, quote unquote, like view better with American audiences. The changes that he was, was suggesting would have like really altered the way that the story like, had the characters relate to one another and I think again it would have very much Americanized it in a way that puts more focus on like a romantic relationship than on kind of these like other relationships that I think make the film honestly so relatable and and so heartfelt um so that I thought that was interesting in those subsequent releases and I think why this film to me feels so special is that had I think an American studio had the ability to edit it, what we would have experienced as children watching this film would have been wholly different because I think culturally the values are so different. But for me personally, watching this movie as a kid, it was like we talked about earlier, it was so refreshing to see things depicted in a different way. Like it was so cool to see animated films that had heroines that were interesting and unique and like felt relatable in a way that I think a lot of 
other cartoons didn't have those same characters that had the depth and growth that these films do. And so I think it's, yeah. Well, just a couple more like notes on Studio Ghibli. I didn't say this earlier, but I mean, I think it's pretty clear as a studio, one of their goals is really to explore the depths of the human soul. And I think that they do that in every one of their films. They present characters that are unique, that you don't see anywhere else, but capture a kind of humanness that I think really bridges the gap in cinema between animation and the rest of film medium, which I think is really unique and cool. I was thinking about that as you were talking about how Miyazaki is such like a you know, face value person, like, he's such a literal person, like, uh, in, for himself, like, as a person, as a person, that, like, in his normal existence, he's just such a take it at face value kind of guy, and I think, I think that's so important in, in, in a person that in their art wants to express these certain ideas about the human soul, because you can, you, it can fall flat if you try to over explain it, which people that are very like philosophical and, and metaphorical tend to do in their movies. I think a lot of artists that try that do it because they want to, they want to explore this like expansive philosophical like vision or answer some question tend to over explain in their movies and it, it kind of ends up falling flat or you can you can see you can tell that's what they're trying to do and I think it takes a person like him who's just as a as a human being is such a realist and such a kind of literal guy to do that and he because he can explain these concepts and he can talk about these ideas in such a literal way yeah that they're so deep but they're not they don't seem pretentious or like overly conceptual. explained it's like it's very... no not at all I feel like he makes it's it... It's real. It's just it like a human nature movie. Yeah. He makes it simple and clear. Like, he takes these really complicated things and makes it easy to understand and easy to connect and empathize with. And I think that's a large reason why his films have so much staying power is just because he's able to com- to capture these really complex and, like, beautiful examples of just what it means to be human. Um, And I think that's what's really special. So... Miyazaki has retired a couple times, but he is directing a new film for Studio Ghibli called How Do You Live, which doesn't have a release date yet. It was supposed to come out in 2021. Um, There's currently not a date listed, but there's about, from what, what I saw last reports, like 60 animators working on this film. So that'll be interesting to see. I'm really curious about what, Expect what that's going to be about. Not in yeah, <laughs> truly. And I will, just a quick note on Studio Ghibli. I don't know if it's still there, but Lydia and I a few months ago did go to the Academy Museum. I don't know if you were going to mention this, so you probably were, but um, in LA, and um, they did, when we went there, they did have an entire, the entire, like, third floor or something was um, uh, an exhibit dedicated to Studio Ghibli, and you can't take photos in it. It's, like, very, like, they it's very like um respected and well kept it feels like and it feels like being in one of their movies it is so beautiful we were both like crying i was like <laughs> sobbing no it was yeah, such it a was cool amazing. experience i'm glad that they didn't let you take pictures because they did really try to make you feel like you were in one of the films so there were lots of things that i think especially in LA would be considered Instagrammable but because you couldn't take pictures and there were guards literally everywhere it really did allow you to just everyone was just focused on being present and yeah the experience of being there and they had really cool cells from like 
the actual like backgrounds of different movies like it was really amazing to see sketches like I I think it was one of the coolest like exhibits I've seen in a really it, I, long I totally time. agree and and what they did um it was very sensory and I think what they did that I remembered when I was watching this movie was I like I think even if you haven't seen this movie if you watch it you'll you will recognize the music I think it, the music is very like well known in this film um especially in Howl's Moving Castle and and in the exhibit they were like utilizing a lot of the scores that he uses in his music to kind of give you the sense that you're in one of his movies but um when I was re-watching this movie I forgot how much I loved how well the music blends with what's happening in the film and the score is the beautiful score is and it's it's stunning. very like famous I think mm-hmm. people would recognize it if they heard it too so yeah like even it's if you haven't seen the movie you probably probably, probably one of my favorite music scores yeah me too it's great it's so it's so beautiful well, let's jump into some some fun facts and then we'll wrap up. Please. All right. So upon seeing Spirited Away in 2001, Christian Bale immediately agreed to play any role in the next film, um, <laughs> which I think I is hilarious. That. And then they were like, great, you can be Howl. And he was like, what? <laughs> and he's like, cool, sounds good. Sign me up, main character. I'm in. Um, my other favorite thing is that um, Hayao Miyazaki and Lauren Bacall um, were both like longtime fans of each other's work. They met at a subtitled screening in New York, and apparently, like this is reportedly, but like I can also see her totally doing this. Um, apparently, she jo- jokingly asked him if he was married, which I think is like very. She absolutely. Very I don't Lauren. think that's fake. No, <laughs> it's so perfect, fake. and I'm obsessed with it. Um. So the film features a moment with Christian Bale's distinct growl. <laughs> like, you know what I'm talking about. Um, he was also rehearsing for Batman Begins at this point, which came out in 2005. Um, and so I think there's definitely some crossover between the two roles, which I think is hilarious. Yeah, he's so method, but like sometimes it seeps into what he's doing at the moment. You, if When I was watching this, I was like, why is he using his Batman voice? I forgot how old Batman Begins is. I forgot it came out around the same time. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's so interesting when you look at the timeline of these films because you know, even within a couple of years of each other, the art that's being created is so different, but there's all this like weird crossover. And speaking of weird crossover, this is the second Ghibli film voiced by a Batman live action actor. Christian Bale voiced Hal Pendragon, obviously, um, but Michael Keaton originally played the titular role Porco Rosso in that film. So, oh, again, some kind well, of look fun at that. Life. Miyazaki was love Batman. <laughs> Apparently. He's like, yes. <laughs> so oh God, really there funny. you have it. Roger Ebert. I was going to read a quote from him, but he hated this movie. He gave it two and a half stars and did not like oh, it. Oh, I don't agree with him. I know. So Roger Ebert said this was probably one of his least favorite Hayazaki films. Um, Miyazaki films. Hayao Miyazaki. I put them together. Miyazaki. You got it. It's fine. We got it. We got that. But what I think is that this is what I think is interesting is that this is actually one of Miyazaki's favorite films that he ever created. Um, and in 2013, he said, "I wanted to convey the message that life is worth living," and I feel like this film does that. So he did. It does. <laughs> I uh, Roger was wrong. Roger was wrong. I love this movie. I do too. So I don't know. Final closing thoughts. <laughs> I I just, like, agree with everything that you said about this movie. I think it is so beautiful, and I think it's such a good movie to show children about, like, the importance of peace in the world and what the point of um, 
of living a life that is that is tolerant and and accepting and respectful of others and and seeking to find beauty in all things I think that's the most important thing that I that I take from this movie and and I just I yeah I think it's beautiful it's one it's one of my favorites of of um Studio Ghibli and uh yeah it's like for sure one of my favorite cartoons I I was trying to think of what my favorite Studio Ghibli is and it might be this one honestly like this one and My Neighbor Totoro are probably my two favorites but yeah I think this movie is um 10 out of 10 I would 100% recommend it I think it's like equally I think it's one of those movies uh, or stories rather that is like you can take something different from it or experience something different from it at, at any like different stage in your life like when I was a kid it was like the scenery is beautiful and it's all these things and then watching it as an adult I'm just like wow these like concepts of being a human and just like experiencing the world for what it is and like remembering that there's something worth living for and there's always hope in the world um is like what I took from it and it just is like a nice reminder and it just put me in a good mood honestly yeah I feel like I really needed this so if you guys are looking for a movie that will I don't know, capture the human experience, but also make you hopeful. Um, highly recommend this movie. And it's just so beautiful in a way that is, I think, you know, really unique to Studio Ghibli. So 10 out of 10 recommend. I love this 10 film. 10 out of 10. I think even if you're not a huge animation person, this film to me feels like one that really blurs kind of the lines between really beautiful cinematography and animation. So I totally agree. I give it a watch I love this movie is this your favorite what is your favorite Studio Ghibli movie I think my favorite would probably have to be My Neighbor Totoro that one makes me cry every time because I love the sister relationship between um the two the two sisters do you and your sister like that movie we do we used to watch it all the time but I I just think that one's really really special and I think that this film is very beautiful but that one takes kind of the the style to a new new heights um so definitely i would recommend both i know that we talked about this one but yeah yeah castle in the sky is also really good as well but i think yeah this one's just a little i mean spirited away is like watch it once (laughs) i mean it's just really intense it's it's a very to me it's a very stressful film and like i just don't have room for that No, this is this is a palate cleanser for this sure. This is just it's so um, nice in these crazy times. Yeah. So I cannot, I just like cannot, like recommend this one enough. It's so good. Um, yeah, that was great. I loved it. Love this movie. Well, thank you for uh that amazing analysis, Lydia, on um Howl's Moving Castle. Uh, highly recommend it. Uh, if you guys are interested or not interested in animated film, I think this is a good one for for anyone to watch, and it's just a good like if you need an uplifting movie, this is a great one for that. Um, if you are interested in other things we have to say, we post things on our social media, so follow us or check us out on TikTok and Instagram, uh, where we talk about movies and use TikTok to talk about cocktails. So um, check us out there uh, and tune in next time as we talk about my favorite animated movie like of all time, Toy Story 2. <laughs> We're not talking about Toy Story 1, baby. We're talking about Toy Story 2, going to the sequel. It is the um, probably the like film of like the the. The only, how do I put this? It's like the only movie where I like the sequel more than the the first one. You know, what? I actually agree with you there. I can't think of another another like 
film series. This is like the like most nostalgic <laughs> movie to me. Yeah, this um, is like the most the nostalgic song movie by from my this film. It's going to make me cry. wrecks me. Sarah yeah, McLaughlin. you got a friend. Knows. Oh, my God. But isn't, doesn't Sarah McLaughlin have a song in this one, too? I, oh, she, oh, yeah. The one, like oh, yeah, sorry. Wine. I was thinking, yep. That's yep, also, yep, you've got a friend in me. Sorry, great song, I was thinking of you got song. a friend in me. The one about Jessie and, like, losing her person. Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> like, that song destroys me. You got a friend in me is Woody's song, and then Jessie has the Sarah McLaughlin song. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Oh my god, I forgot. Oh my god, I'm about to get, be wrecked all over again. Get wrecked. I, um, I'm excited to talk about this one. <laughs> we'll talk about this and talk about my personal uh, experience and what I put my babysitter through when I was a kid with this movie. So I'm um, really excited to talk about that. And um, we're going to talk about like the history of Pixar because I think that's going to be super fascinating, very yeah. important animation studio. So, excited to talk about um, John Lasseter. And uh, Pixar is yeah. located in Emeryville, which is very close to me. So. <laughs> I love that, and it's it's probably a cool campus because they have like some quirky stuff, and they've got a big lamp, which is like one, my favorite part of any Pixar movies is the lamp jumping on the eye. Yeah, the so. little noise it makes. We all know. Yes. It. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we'll maybe we'll add it in. We'll post Please it on our do. Instagram. <laughs> um, no, I think you so should join just us. use our, our our vocals that we just did. Please help. That's that. gonna be our intro from now on. Just the weird our version of the Pixar eye. Yeah, that'd be so funny. That's how, to it. that's how you should intro next episode. <laughs> that was him turning his little head. Yeah. No, I got God. that. That was perfect. Jesus. <laughs> well, join us next week and you might get to hear that again. <laughs> Until then. Oh my God. Cheers. Cheers.